I want to start um, this morning with a question, and it's really cool because one of my friends about whom I spoke in first service is now here, and uh, Chris Jones will be able to attest that everything I'm about to say is true. Um, did you ever wrestle with your siblings or friends for fun? Did you ever? Yes. Oh, and I, yes, good. Tori, so I was saying, you know, depending on whether you're male or female, you may have a slightly different response to this. Not because I'm sexist, but I just never fought my sister. Like, never. She and I never got into it. I never fought her friends. But every single one of my brother's friends, we fought tooth and nail. It was, like, fun for us. So they'd come over, and we'd be hanging out in the backyard. And sooner or later, we'd be like, you want to fight? And they'd be like, yeah, let's fight. And so we'd kind of clear out a space, and we would fight. And we liked this so much that we would do this one on vacation. So uh, Chris and Catherine Jones, our dear friends who are here today, um, Chris was there when we would rent out cottages. Thank God there wasn't Airbnb in our day because they wouldn't have let us rent them because we would go into a cottage and we would immediately go to the living room and clear out the furniture. And if there was a big carpet, the better, and we would fight. And we would tag team and we would just go hammer and tongs. We only had two rules, no punching in the face and nothing in the area. So <laughs> stay away from the area and don't punch in the face. But other than that, everything's fine. And we would like rotate the teams. And so you can see Chris is over here. He's pretty big. He was bigger even then, okay? And so if you had to fight Chris, you started praying to Jesus. Like, we would go at it. And if you're thinking, what were the girls doing? I have no idea, because it was just us, and we would just go at it until we were, like, exhausted. Now, the thing that's fun about fighting your friends, in fact, I said this in first service, and he's here now. We had a skinny friend. They're always, like, the dangerous ones. He's skin Why are they dangerous? Because they're so skinny that their parents put them in karate, right? <laughs> And so we had a friend, Gord Marriage, who had a black belt in karate. And so every time Chris had to fight him, he immediately dislocated his shoulders. He'd just grab him and suplex him, and boom, both of Gord's shoulders would come out, and then Chris could win, right? It's the small, skinny guys you really got to watch for, because you're fighting, you think it's all fun and games, and then they put you in a chokehold. They start choking you, and like they're not breaking the rules, they're not punching you in the face, they're not, and so they're choking you, and you realize it's not fun anymore, now you're overmatched. You got to tap out. You're like, uncle, right? You got to bow the knee. You're overmatched. This is what it's like with Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you're fighting with Jesus, but I'm saying as you wrestle with the implications of who Jesus is and what this means for your life, you will find yourself enjoying it sometimes. You will find yourself struggling with it sometimes. But, you know, you'd be like, all right, this is good. We can keep at this. And all of a sudden, pow, one second to the next, whoo, choke hold, and you realize, oh, he's the master of the universe. And the second you realize that he's the master of the universe, you better bow your knee right quick. And this is the central question in today's sermon. What does it look like to bow the knee to the master of the universe? We find six clues in Mark chapter 11. I'm reading out of the uh, English Standard Version. Here we go. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, um, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, uh, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 
And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. That's hangry Jesus right there. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, still hangry, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came... They went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his or her heart, but believes that what they say will come to pass, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who is also in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, uh, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, um, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We see here in uh, Mark chapter 11, six ways that it looks like when you bow the knee to the master of the universe. Six ways that your life looks like when you bow your knee to the master of the universe. The first thing is, is this. Life kind of looks like um, prophecy is trumpeting Jesus as the apex of the story of God. Okay, Prophecy here is trumpeting Jesus as the apex. He's the Everest. He is the penultimate. So if prophecy does that, you should too, if you want to bow the knee to the master of the universe. It looks this way also. We see here the downtrodden hailing him as the one who will save. So if you want to bow the knee to the master of the universe, so should you. Here in Mark 11, nature bows to his whim because he is the master maker. So I think it makes sense to say that we ought to do what he says if we want to bow our knee to the master of the universe. Here we see in Mark chapter 11 that religion bends under his lash. So the teaching is clear to us. We better stop being religious ASAP. We see here further in Mark chapter 11 that belief finds its ultimate rootedness in him. So make him the heart of your belief also. That is if you want to bow the knee to him. And finally, point number six, we see that the system must surrender to him. So if the sister, system must surrender to him, you should do the same right quick. Why? Because you are over matched. You're overmatched when it comes to Jesus. Point number one, prophecy trumpets him as the apex of the story of God. This is what's happening here in verses 1 through 11. This whole riding into Jerusalem on a colt, 
People saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. This is a direct fulfillment of the words of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming unto you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that um, prophecy out of Zechariah 9 is one of between 50 and 450 prophecies about the Messiah that are contained in the Old Testament. It's quite a variance, like depending on who you're reading. There's either 50 or 450 prophetic words in the Old Testament about the Messiah that Christians believe are fulfilled in Jesus. Here's a sampling of some of the more famous ones. It was said of him that he would be the seed, the offspring of a woman who would crush the head of Satan. That's out of Genesis 3.15. It said that he would come from the seed of Abraham and that he would bless all the members of the earth through him, Genesis 12, 13. It said of him that he would be a prophet like Moses to whom God said that we must listen in Deuteronomy 18, 15. It was said of him that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. That's out of Micah 5, 2. It was said of him that he would be born of a virgin. That's prophesied in Isaiah 7, 14. It said of him that he would have a throne and a kingdom and a house starting with the line of King David that would last forever, prophesied in 2 Samuel 7, 16. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace and would possess an everlasting kingdom prophesied in isaiah 9 6 through 7 it is said that he would ride into jerusalem on a donkey righteous and having salvation coming with gentleness in zechariah 9 9 through 10 it is said that he would be pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities in isaiah 53 5 it is said that he would be resurrected from the grave for god would not allow his holy one to see corruption in psalm 16 10 it is said that he will come again in glory from the clouds of heaven as the son of man in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14. It is said of him that he would be the son of righteousness for all who receive him and look for his coming again prophesied in Malachi 4 2. It is said of him that he is the one whom Israel will one day recognize as the one whom they pierced causing them bitterest grief prophesied in Zechariah 12 10. Just a sampling of some of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Now, let's just be honest. There's a couple ways you can come to Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. You can come to it as a skeptic, or you can come to it as a believer. So a skeptic would hear all this and go, wow, just goes to show you that the New Testament writers sure knew their Old Testament, so they were very careful to construct this edifice to match the story that they were concocting as a system of control that would run down through the ages, resulting in the corrupt Western church. Right? I've spent some time amongst skeptics. So we got to say touche. That's real. I get it. I can see how you could think that. Okay, if you were a skeptic, I could see how that would make sense to you. Or you can come to it from the perspective of belief. And this is the perspective of belief. Wow! Um, how incredible is it that this Jesus, whom I have experienced personally, has such an incredible backstory? This is why personal experience of Jesus, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, is absolutely the crucial component here. This is why any good church is constantly mediating experiential Christianity to its people. Crafting their worship experience such that you experience the life of God in a real way. Preaching in such a way that you experience the life of God in a real way. Living life together as his community in such a way that as many people as possible taste and see that the Lord is good. Because until you have experienced Jesus for yourself, skepticism makes a lot more sense than belief. But once you have experienced Jesus for yourself, nothing a skeptic says gets to you. Wow, what an incredible backstory. From a Christian point of view, 
All of the Old Testament moves towards and climaxes with Jesus as the point. Jesus is the apex. He's the point. He is Everest. Okay, that's what Christians believe. That's what the Old Testament says. And if you're going to bow the knee to Jesus, you will say the same thing. You will begin calling him the apex. You will begin thinking of him as the point. He is the point. And you will begin making him the point of your story also. And you'll hail him as the one who will save, point number two. This is uh, what's happening in verses 7 through 11. You'll hail him as the one who will save. These downtrodden Jewish people who've been suffering under the, rope, the, under the yoke of the empire of Rome for years, they hail him as the Savior. This is what Hosanna is all about. If you grew up like me in church, Pentecostal church, or even a kind of progressive Baptist church, or in a charismatic church, you would have sung Hosanna. Remember that song? Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And I always thought, who's Hosanna and why are we singing about her? Right, as a kid, you're like, who's Hosanna? Okay, it's a very famous sequence. What does Hosanna mean? Hoshia, na, save us now. Hoshia, save us, na, now. Save us now. It's so Israeli that this crowd immediately is like, oh, he's about to do it. So they rip up all these fronds to wave, which is a symbol of kingship, and they throw their cloaks on the ground before him, which is, again, a Jewish symbol of kingship, and they start shouting just to, I don't know, let's peer pressure him into it. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Save us now. Hoshiana. Save us now. And uh, it's quite a ruckus. As a kid growing up in Israel, every time we came to this um, season in the church calendar, you'd have all these tour groups from North America that would hike up to the top of Mount of Olives early in the morning, usually wearing white, with palm fronds and musicians, and they would trek their way down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and up again to the city of Jerusalem, singing and carrying on and Yes, because I was the son of a missionary church planter, I had tassels and ribbons and wore a white robe and pretended it was Jesus' day and danced my way down the Mount of Olives. And I thought, man, people are going pretty crazy. Imagine what it must have been like in Jesus' day. They literally thought this was the moment where the Messiah put an end to Roman rule and restored the kingdom of their father David. So imagine the anticlimax when he goes up on the Temple Mount, looks around, and then goes home. How weird is this? Right, big deal, big deal. Save us now, save us now. Right? Then he goes up on the Temple Mount, looks around. Ah, it's late. Let's go back to Bethpage. Turn tail and they walk home. Anticlimax. Let me say this. Jesus is typically only anticlimactic to those of us who do not understand what he's really up to. And let me say this. I don't think any of us really know for sure what he's up to. Like, I don't know exactly what he's doing with salvation. If you know exactly what he's doing with salvation, let me come sit at your feet, because I'm not sure. In today's sermon, you'll actually have the two lingering quotes from my Masters of Theology work. The two quotes from my systematic theology work that have stuck with me across these two and a half decades. Here's the first one. Speaking about salvation. I hope this broadens your understanding of salvation a little bit. Because when I read this for the first time, it, lit, I mean, it, it changed my life. This comes from Tom Torrance, arguably the greatest theologian of modern history, in his book, The Trinitarian Faith. And he describes salvation this way. He says, you have been saved from all eternity in the heart of God the Father. You were saved in the work of God the Son, in his incarnation, his sinless life, his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection and ascension. 
And you are being saved as you walk by the Spirit in that which has been accomplished for you. You've been saved from all eternity in the heart of God the Father. You were saved in the work of God the Son. And you are being saved as you respond to the call of God the Holy Spirit to walk in that which has been accomplished for you. This is a mind-blowing understanding of salvation. Much bigger, much broader, much more compelling than the one I was raised under. The point is this. Salvation does not look like, nor will it look like, what we expect. I expect to be very surprised. I expect to find out that my vision of who God is and what that meant was stunted at best. How do we know? Well, the scripture clearly teaches in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 that now we see us through a glass dimly, which in modern vernaculars we only kind of half understand. Ever tried to, do you have sunglasses like mine that need to be replaced because the scratches have gotten so bad? Okay, it's worse than that. Okay, imagine a grimy mirror that you're trying to look in the reflection to kind of see what's coming behind you and you're walking backwards. This is kind of like how we understand salvation. For now we see us through a glass dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but then we will know fully even as we are fully known. So I want to invite you to take this as an opportunity to be non-dogmatically legalistic in how you approach, interpret, and apply Jesus and his salvation to your life and importantly to the lives of others. I want to invite you to trade your legalism for rejoicing. I want to invite you, like Zechariah 9, to rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Why? Because your king is on his way. I want to invite you to uh, trade um, stuck-up Christianness for simple joy. Simple joy because of what God has done and what God is doing. Now, my sweet wife, as you may know, is doing her master's degree right now in psychotherapy with a little theology sprinkled in for good measure. And so she's constantly saying to me, listen to this. And last night she said, listen to this. And it was so good that I'm going to say to you, listen to this. Whatever one says about grace, this healing good that comes from God arrives upon the scene of sin freely and unbidden as a gift that descends and heals without having been earned or won. It appears without warrant, This is what makes it grace. It cannot be bought or achieved by those who need it. Over the centuries, this basic storyline has burrowed into almost every nook and cranny of church faith and practice and inhabits many corners of North American non-religious culture life as well. It pops up all over the Bible, be it in saga-like tales of God's Red Sea liberation of Israel or in Davidic poetry about lost sheep and good shepherds. It runs through worship services, humming through hymns, ringing out in the confession of sin and forgiveness, circling around the communion table, blurting itself out in benediction. It's a story that also repeats itself in the theological writings of ecclesial teachers whose job it has been to examine it. Granted, there have been different accounts of what the problem is, what kind of dramatic action God takes in response to it, and how active human beings are in what transpires. Several of these have been explored in previous chapters, but running through them all from medieval atonement theory to womanist survival theology is a shared narrative, dramatic structure. God breaks in and saves Whatever the problem might be, be it pride, lust, greed, unfaithfulness, social injustice, grace overwhelms it and something new happens. That's the core moment, the heart of the story. A takeover action wipes the slate clean and starts things anew. As with most enduring stories, this is a tale that pulses not only through the minds, but also through bodies. For those who learn the story in church school and then breathe it night and day as I did, this redemptive dynamic 
unfolds in the motions of one's physical gestures, determining how a person feels in one's own skin, just as it patterns the deep logic of streaming desires, the conscious longings, as well as those unknown but insistent and real, the gestures it patterns are actually so deeply embedded in thought and bodily processes that one often fails to recognize that they are being enacted. When I have an argument with a friend, for example, my almost instinctive response is to start trying to figure out what went wrong and then to start looking around for what will fix it, the intervention that will save us. I seldomly think explicitly, oh well, Jesus or God or the Trinity will fix it, but deep inside my brainstem somewhere, the hope that a transcendent God will make it right springs eternal, particularly when I've run out of my own ideas as to how I might make it right. Expecting the world to be broken and expecting grace to come, it is the air and gravity of sin grace imagination. That's what makes Christians such inveterate hopers. In our minds, something is always about to happen, and then it does. Somebody shout. I mean, that's almost as good as reading scripture. Help me, Jesus. How good is that? Nature itself bears the signature of the Redeemer. Hallelujah! Most people are not unbelievers. They're just in denial. The day will come when they taste and see that the Lord is good. And like nature, I want to invite you, point number three, to get ready to bow to His whim, because He's the master maker. That's the point of verses 12 through 14 and 20 through 21, wherein we read the account of grumpy Jesus and the recalcitrant fig tree. Right? This is grumpy Jesus. This is hangry Jesus. It's coming down from Bethpage. Even today, if you walk from... Sam, you look tired. You tired, baby? Your hair is crazy, too. You look like an ostrich. They're walking down from... They're walking down from Bethpage to Jerusalem, and even today, if you did that walk, it would take you about an hour and a half. So it's first thing in the morning, there's no Tim Hortons, he hasn't had no coffee yet, he's walking to Jerusalem and he's hungry. He sees a fig tree, he's like, I'm going to go get some figs. He walks up to the fig tree, the fig tree's in leaf, but it has no figs, and he's so upset that he curses it. He says, may no one ever eat figs from you again, interestingly, even though it was not yet the season for figs. We see something super awesome here. Chris is going to love this. It's almost as if the writer assumes that Jesus assumed that the fig tree would recognize that the one who planted the tree of life has walked into the neighborhood and I better do something drastic. Here's my fruit master. Right? Remember who this is. This is the word made flesh. The one through whom God breathed everything that is into existence. It's no wonder He was a little let down by the fact that the fig tree didn't recognize who had come. I wonder if the same criticism might be leveled at you. That you have failed to recognize who Jesus is. That you have failed to do that thing that God has uniquely made you to do. See, fig trees are meant to bear fruit. Just like you and me. Okay, a few things to keep in mind here with the fig tree. Does the fig tree represent Jerusalem and Judaism and its fruitless religion? Maybe. Maybe it does. I think probably. Definitely that's what some scholars think. But you know what I think it really represents? It really represents me and my fruitless efforts to save myself apart from Jesus. And if that's true of me, it's true of you. Does this um, story remind us of Matthew chapter 17, verses uh, 15 through 20, and the false prophets who look like sheep but really are wolves. Sure it does. Here it is. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. I love it when the Bible gets this simple. Healthy tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. How goes your fruitiness, friends? I'm going to make a t-shirt. Jesus loves fruits. And I'm going to wear it with pride. Right? He loves fruity trees. Why does he expect um, a fruity tree to bear fruit? Because he's the master maker, and that's what he built you to do. So in the immortal words of Stephen King, taken from the Shawshank Redemption, you know, get busy living or get busy dying. Get busy living or get busy dying. And look, get as unreligious as possible, as quick as possible, because point number four, religion bends under his lash. So you better stop being religious right away. This is the point of verses 15 through 19. He goes in and he cleanses the temple. In John's account of the same event, Jesus goes in the temple, he's disturbed by what he sees, he leaves the temple, he fashions a whip. So he takes the time to make a whip, then he goes back in and with the whip, clears the place out. That's in John's account. Okay, here in Mark, he just goes in and lays waste to the place, overturns the tables of the money changer, kicks everyone out, doesn't let anyone carry any commerce through the temple anymore. He kind of goes nuts. And then he's shouting about it. In John, it's amazing. Like the sermon is captured there at some length. But in Mark, it's pretty quick. It says he's teaching the following. Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? Let me unpack this for you real quick. What's the point about a house? Somebody lives there. So this is the point about God's house. God lives there. There is no temple in Jerusalem. Where is God's house today? You're looking at it. Okay, Ephesians 2, says that you are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit, which means literally you are God's house. And so what's the point of you being God's house? You being a place where God dwells. Okay, this is important. God lives here. A house of prayer. What's the point of prayer? Communion with God. Intimacy with God. This is what he's about. Okay, in his house, people are meant to be able to experience intimacy with him. It's a house of prayer for who? For all nations. And did you know that most scholars believe that the Jewish money changers had set up shop in the court of the Gentiles? Not in Solomon's porch, not just on the pilgrim road that led from the Pool of Siloam up towards the temple courts. I've actually walked this road and there are stalls all the way along. So all the way along the pilgrim road, you'd arrive in South Jerusalem, bathe in the Pool of Siloam, which is still there to this day. If you're coming to Israel with us next year, we're actually going to go to the Pool of Siloam, and then we're actually going to hike up the pilgrim road. They've been excavating it for years. My friends have been doing it. It's incredible. You can actually hike up the actual pilgrim road. The stalls are right there. The Stone of Claims is right there where Jesus used to preach. It's crazy. You come out underneath the temple, and you can see that there used to be stores everywhere, but what they had done was set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. Did you know the Gentiles weren't allowed to enter the the inner courts of the temple, there were walls and there were signs, which I've read. Archaeologists have actually uncovered signs that read in Greek, no Gentiles allowed. If you pass this point, you will be killed. And so you and me, if we went to the temple, we'd have to stop in the court of the Gentiles. All the Jews could go into the inner courts. 
Okay, but what had these Jewish money changers done? They had set up their money changing in the court of the Gentiles. So the only place that people like us could go to worship God had been turned into Walmart. Jesus isn't happy about this. He trashes the place. He says, is it not written that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations? Friends, community, intimacy, inclusivity. These are core values for Jesus, so I'm pretty sure they should be for us also. And you're thinking, but it's hard to live my life like it's God's neighborhood. Somebody say amen. I know. Isn't it hard to live your life like it's God's neighborhood? And you're thinking, but Todd, it's hard. I find communion with God so all-consuming. The deeper I go with God, the less I care about life as usual, and that's making my life as usual more and more difficult. Honestly, I know. And you're thinking, Todd, if I'm really being honest, I don't really care about anyone else. I'm really concerned about me. And look, I feel the same way. It's a constant war. Nobody ever said faith was easy. But, point number five, belief, true faith, finds its root in Jesus. So let's make him the heart of our belief also. This is what's happening here in verses 22 through 26. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will come to pass, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, this is a very difficult passage because if you're anything like me, you're thinking, I've never moved a mountain. Never once have I said to a mountain, be removed and it's cast itself into the sea. Let's remember a couple things here. In Judaism, this phrase, speak to the mountain and it will throw itself into the sea, is a colloquial expression that meant the impossible. And if you've ever changed a diaper at two in the morning on two hours sleep, you have done the impossible. If you have ever forgiven someone who's wronged you 70 times seven, you, my friend, have done the impossible. If you have ever loved someone who is unlovable, you have done the impossible. If you have ever, having received a terminal diagnosis, woken up even one day and given God praise because the sun was in the sky and gone to his house with joy in your heart, you, my friend, have spoken to the mountain and it has thrown itself into the sea. This is what this passage means. And also, it means to put our gaze not upon ourselves, but upon Jesus. Anytime you read a difficult phrase about faith, I want you to think about Jesus. When I read what Jesus says here, I think he's probably talking about himself. He says, if anyone would say to a mountain, be ye removed, it will be cast into the sea. I think he's talking about himself for sure. How do I know this? Well, because I know the Bible, and I know it says some things about faith and faithlessness. It says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful in 2 Timothy 2.13. This is the second thing I remember from theology school. And this literally changed my life. I want you to know, church, that it is the faith of Jesus Christ that is primarily operative in salvation. Which is why we must read Galatians 2.16 with the Greek in mind, lest we build a counterfeit edifice of our own works. Here it is, Galatians 2.16. Yet we, now hear it in the English, and I'm going to give you the Greek. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified, which is all fine and good and sounds pretty leveraged towards the faith that we put in Jesus, except in the original it reads this. And when I heard this in theology school, it literally changed the rest of my life. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through the faith of Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 2.16, which is kind of the whole point of Galatians 2.20 and 21. And this time I will insert the correct Greek word. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me. Here it is. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, your salvation depends on what Jesus did for you in going to the cross and suffering and dying in your place for your sins and bearing the penalty for your sin in mine in suffering in the way that you should have suffered in dying the death that you should have died. Jesus Christ has taken the weight upon himself and he really died so that you could live. But because he was God, he did not stay dead. But he really rose again the third day, defeating in his body the power of Satan sin, death, and hell, and he really ascended to his Father's right hand where he sat down in victory, where even now he's really interceding for you until that great and glorious day when he himself comes back again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom, which will have no end, a kingdom in which he has prepared a place for you. This is what Jesus has done, and your salvation, your faith, your hope, the love that you feel in your life depends upon him and not upon you. You may not have an of faith, but Jesus is enough. He is the root and offspring of David in the words of Revelation 22, 16. He is the point. So, last point, the system must surrender to him, and the sooner it does so, the better. This is what's happening in verses 27 through. How come nobody jumped up at the end of that section there? Ain't nobody running laps in this church. Woo, someday, ho! Oh. Jesus, thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you for what you accomplished for us at the cross. Thank you, Lord, that our salvation does not depend upon our works, but upon the fact that you and you alone are the one who keeps faith. Hallelujah. You know, hallelujah. He is the point. He is the root and the offspring of David. And so the system has to surrender to him, and the sooner, the better. See, this is exactly the tension that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are dealing with when they approach him in verse 28, and they say, who gave you this authority to do these things? They're basically saying to him, who do you think you are? You're messing with our system. Okay, I want you to understand the stakes here. So this little point I'm about to make took me, no joke, 45 minutes of research to get right. 45 minutes for five lines. I want you to keep in mind that wealth, power, and control were a huge part of the temple system by this point. In Judaism of the day, between 10 and 22% of the nation's gross domestic product was given to the temple in any year. Between 10 and 22%. Let's bring that to Canada. Let's set the math at 10% because I'm an English and theology major, not a mathematician. Okay, so if we set it at 10% 
of Canada's GDP in 2018. And like they did in Bible times, we divided that tithe by the Levitical cities, the main cities in Israel. So for us, there are 33 cities in Canada that have more than 100,000 people living in them. So if we took just 10% of Canada's gross domestic product and divided it by those 33 top cities, each of those 33 cities would have $545 million given to the church to do its business. Last time I checked, Guelph's budget is about like $245 million a year, the city hall budget. So it's more than double city hall's budget. And there are 50 churches in the city of Guelph. So that means, you guessed it, that every single church in the city of Guelph would get $10,900,000 from the government to do the work of Christ every year. So you can imagine how uptight I would be if some prophet from the country wandered into our church and started attacking the system that gave us the $10 million a year that we did business with. We run this church right now on about $620,000 a year. Imagine if there was $10 million at stake. Imagine how much I would fight that dude. I'd fight him with everything I got, let's be honest. Money equals power, and power equals control. Imagine now that I didn't have, I didn't have just $10,900,000 with our leadership board to use to equip you as saints for the work of the ministry here in the city of Guelph. But imagine, like in Judaism, I actually had, as the priest in this house, control over your access to God. This is what was happening in Judaism, right? If you want to get right with God, you've got to come through me. And if I decide for some reason that it's not acceptable for you, off you go. You can understand now why the priests were so virulently opposed to the ministry of Jesus. Did you know that Caiaphas, the high priest in Jesus' day, lived in a castle in Jerusalem right down the street from the castle of King Herod? Money, power, control. These are what the chief priest describes the elders were fighting over. They had a stranglehold on Jewish culture, and this is the system that Jesus is threatening. Who do you think you are? And Jesus, beautiful Jesus, says this. I'll answer your question if you'll answer mine. In verse 29 through 33, I'll paraphrase it for the sake of time. He says this. Um, you know, my cousin John, the baptism that he was baptizing people with, was it from heaven or from man? And these religious elite leaders go, mm, well, if we say it was from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say it's from man, the whole crowd will kill us because they all believe that John was really a prophet. I know. Let's tell them we don't know. Um, we're not sure. We're not sure protecting their system at all costs. If you default to agnosticism, do not expect revelation. Will you bow your preferred system of control? Will you bow to that? Or will you bow to Jesus? Worship team, you can join me on stage because I'm done. What are you going to bow to? To your preferred system of control? Are you going to bow the knee to Jesus? Will you trumpet him as the apex of all stories, including yours? Will you hail him as the one who saves? Will you bow to him and do what he's made you to do, like the good fruity tree that you're meant to be? Will you overturn the religious consumerism and exclusivism that lurks in your heart before he does? Will you make him the root of your faith? Will you bow your system of control to him? Friends, you should, because uh, when it comes to Jesus, let's face it, you're overmatched. <laughs> 